short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Back to the Cold War, episode 62. How are you, buddy? Fine. <laughs> Why are we talking like this? <laughs> because Halloween is almost here. Ha, 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 ha. I have no idea. Uh, just a warning for folks uh, today. Um the outside outside of my uh, now as as you know we we record our shows in state of the art pod oh well fuck there it goes outside <laughs> of my window there are a couple of lovely lovely blue collar guys in a cherry right. picker uh, I think they are cleaning the roofs and the walls uh, of the upper stories of the uh, units in the 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 rabbit warren of um, apartment buildings where I live. So nice. it, 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 I, went on, I went outside and I said, look, do you know who I am? And they said, ¿Qué <laughs> pasa? Uh, and I said, See, uh, <laughs> 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 jefe, jefe Camaro. I said, <laughs> I said, really? This is Australia. Why? We don't have Mexicans in Australia. <laughs> what? <laughs> Anyway. Practically royalty um, here. Anyway. I said, do you know who I am? And they said, uh, no. Anyway, so I, 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 I'm going to, I'll, I'll pause. Some noise may intervene, but I'll try and keep it to a minimum. Right. So today we are going to do a bio on the new president of the United States, not Donald Trump, because we did that over on the Caesar show the other day. And Nailed it. Did people fucking lose their minds or what over that? <laughs> Just stick to the Caesar shit. Don't do modern day crap. You're pissing me off. I'm like, calm down. Take a pill. We, I, I, the, the thing that amused me is I posted the, the, the show up on Facebook and all these people are like, don't stop fucking comparing Trump to Caesar. They're nothing like I'm like, yeah, that's the point, dickheads. Go listen to the show. That's why. That's what we say. They just tore into us without listening to the fucking show. Like, yeah, that's, I know yeah. they don't have anything in common. That's what we just spent an hour and a half saying on the show. But we examined it. We examined it de- you know, in detail. So that was the whole point is to go over it, go over it. So, yeah, so they just. Oh, my God. Rip. Yeah. My God. Yeah. People, man, people. <laughs> this planet would be okay with other people. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the other new president uh, we want to talk about is uh, Harry S. Truman, new president, vis-a-vis, ipso facto, 
something Siladini uh, in the timeline of this show. Right, right. Harry S. Truman was born in Lamar, Missouri. Also, the birthplace of Wyatt Earp. Get out of here. I will not. It is my place. I'm. You, you're not the boss of me. Um, he uh, was born, Harry Truman, this is, in 1884, making him 61 years of age when he became the 33rd president of the United States and also makes him 36 years younger than Wyatt Earp. Wow. Mm. Do you know what the S in Harry S stands for, Ray? Yes, I do. Something I'm really good at. Well, according to some people, nothing. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to say 69 there for a second. <laughs> Harry, 69, 69. Truman. <laughs> no, I don't think they had 69 back in 1884. I, I don't think it was invented until the 70s. So <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Speaking of the 70s, um, yeah. David Simon, the creator of The Wire and uh, Treme and lots of other great shows, uh, has a new show out called The Deuce. If you uh, haven't seen it yet, it's, uh, it's about the sex trade and the rise of the porn industry. It's set in New York in 1971. Uh, really, really mm. well done, man, capturing the seediness of New York in those days. So check that out if you're, uh, if you're a David Simon fan. And if you're not, stop listening to this show because, you know. We don't, want you. we don't want you here. Yeah, get out of here, man. Um, yeah, so the S stood for nothing, getting back to Harry. Uh, it was, yeah. I like to think it stood for sociopath, but that's just me. Um, it, it was chosen because both of his grandfathers had a name that started with S at some point, Anderson Ship right. Truman and Solomon Young. And they went, well, we can't agree, so we'll yeah, just they, give him an S yeah. and that'll do. Well, no, that's so, weird. That's weird, right? That that's not a it's not a common thing in America, is it? Just giving kids an initial. No, I mean, if you have to give them two middle names and and give each of them, but yeah, just to go because this was literally a month after he was born. They're like, look, we can't decide, so the S is going to stay an S and nothing more. Weird. That's weird. weird. Uh, his father, John Truman, was a farmer and a livestock dealer. And when he graduated from high school in 1901, Harry went to Spalding's Commercial College, a Kansas City business school where he studied bookkeeping, shorthand and typing, but left after a year because really how much shorthand do you really need (laughs) to be present? Yeah, how long does it take? Well, before we go on any further... I just want to go on the record, and not that I'm trying to piss anybody off, but if I do, that's just a lucky break. Um, for me, th- for me, this uh, Harry S. Truman, before he becomes president, is absolutely nothing like Donald Trump. And then when he becomes president, stepping into FDR's shoes and is totally unqualified, you know, there's some similarities. But for right now, we are going to see a man who seems to be Midwest American, forthright, honest, decent, hardworking, and I. And as we were getting ready for the show, you know, I I grew to respect, uh, I, I grew to respect who he was uh, before he became president. I, I I don't know if there's no uh, similarities between him and Trump before he became president. I mean, he's a failed businessman. Uh, right. He's connected with the mob. 
Um, so I think there is... Political machinery. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's some connections. But yeah, look, Harry, uh, I, I have... I have mixed feelings about Harry. I started reading volume one of his autobiography. Um, I've read a number of other biographies on him. He, yeah, like all of us, complex guy. Seems mm-hmm. seems seems like a good bloke at some points, and then seems like a complete fool and idiot. And uh, on the other, and and a lot of people who knew him thought he was an idiot as well. So anyway, let's go. Uh, keep going. Yeah. So he went to business school. Um, mm-hmm. Then he got a job as a timekeeper on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, sleeping in hobo camps near the rail lines. Good for him. And those classes paid off that he took for a year, paid off because the timekeeper was a pre-payroll position where he would log people's times and give it over to payroll so they could get paid. So, So he wasn't... You know, using his muscle, he was using his brain. He got something out of those classes. And he's trying to, like every, supposedly every American there is, better himself through education and hard work. So good for young Harry. Yeah, um, I guess. Uh, now, by the way, the, the <laughs> ATSF Railway right. uh, served as the basis for some of the inspiration for Ayn Rand's classic novel, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, any Iron Rand fans out there? Put up your hand. Anyone? Yeah. Anyone? No, no just okay. me? Okay. No. Okay. No. Um, you read any of Iron Rand's work, Ray? No. No. Oh, man, you should. You really, really should. I'll read, do it with my free time. Read. <laughs> read. Where when you quit your job? Read Atlas okay. Shrugged. Read The Fountainhead. Um, love them or hate them. They're classic, classic novels. Um, so uh, Truman then worked as a clerk. In a number of places, including the mail room of the Kansas City Star and the National Bank of Commerce in Kansas City, where do you know Ooh. who do you know who he worked with when he was at the National Bank of Commerce? Uh, he um, was it with a the brother of Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower. Indeed, yes, good yeah. research, good research, right? Arthur Eisenhower. Brother of Dwight. Now, they're called Dwight Ike. What did they call Arthur, do you think? Ah? Um, uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> so either. But there you go. That's, uh, that's It's a small world, but I wouldn't want to have to paint it. Uh, then he returned to the family farm in 1906, and mm-hmm. he worked there until World War One. Right. But he was growing up, and his balls had dropped, and he fell in love with his, I guess, a neighbor or someone in the in the area, Bess Wallace. And he proposed to her. I'm sure he was smooth, suave Rico. And he laid down the lines. Alas, she said anything but yes. <laughs> and what was her reason? What was her reason for turning him down, as far as you could tell? Because he was broke and a loser. <laughs> Okay, so much for the soft touch. Yeah, she was she was looking again as as the American dream. You you know you try to marry up or whatever, and he was just a farmer. Had been a farmer since nineteen oh six. So she gave him the old heave ho. Yeah. Now during these years uh, when he's on the farm, he also enlisted in the Missouri Army National Guard, where he served mm-hmm. in the artillery battery like Napoleon. He was a big Napoleon fan, I think, and uh, he ended up attaining the rank of corporal, like Napoleon, the little corporal. 
Got involved in a number of businesses which all failed. Mm-hmm. And then during World War One, he uh, he's he, you know he enlists in the the regular army. He's promoted to captain, given the command of an artillery battery. And without going into too many details, he did a reasonably good job. I think uh, none of his uh, troops were killed during World War One. I. I guess that means you do did a good job. Or it meant that you just spent the whole time hiding. But uh, I think he did a good job. And importantly, he got his first taste of leadership. There's this one story I read where his his guys were running away from uh, the enemy and he just started swearing at them in ways they'd never heard anyone swear at them before. And they were like, oh, shit, man, if if you're going to say that, then we don't know what he said. But apparently they went, I read his uh, one of the biographies that said they they were so shocked to hear those words come out of Truman's mouth that they turned around and ran in the right direction. I was like, I can't imagine what kind of words you would say to me that would make me go, oh, well, if you're going to use that then I guess I'll go and put myself in the firing line. I mean, if if, yeah. it's, if it's come to you using that word, then I guess it really is serious. I I, I didn't realise up until this point what a serious situation this is. <laughs> Thank you for explaining it to me in such colourful language. No, I think the other part of it was that generally he was a shy, modest person, or at least came across that way. So when he does fire off with this uh, very raunchy language, it certainly gets the men's attention. And I think there's a certain amount of shaming. Uh, and you're right, they do turn around. And because his um, his Battery D was certainly known as one of the more unruly groups, but again, he seems to come out of this well-liked and well-respected by a lot of people who thought highly of his modest nature. And that's not going to change. Any, that modest nature is not going to change anytime soon. Mm. Now, he, he established two important friendships during his time in the war. <clears throat> one with a guy who he ended up becoming a business partner with afterwards. The other was with James M. Pendergast, who was a fellow soldier and also happened to be the nephew of T.J. Pendergast, who we're going to talk about quite a bit. He was a Kansas City politician, part of the uh, political machine there, and incredibly influential in Truman's later life. Right. But let, let's let's do some good news first. So the war ends, he gets out, and, and I thought this was uh, interesting. I know we're trying to speed up, but when, when he goes to war, he's 33 years old, and he's two years older than the age limit for the draft. Because he's a farmer, he has that exemption. But he goes in anyway, he helps organize, like you said, his regiment, and he goes in at age 33, so... Um, you know, Trump is running away from war in any way he can. This guy signs up. So that's, I don't know, maybe he gets marks for, for, for courage or bravery. But the point is, after the war, he's got his uniform. I'm sure he's looking dashing and stuff like that. And he goes back to uh, Missouri. And again, he approaches Elizabeth Bess Wallace. And he says to her, how would you like to be the luckiest lady in the world? Yeah, so he asked her to marry him again, and I don't know if it's the experience or the maturity that he's gained, or if there's something that's changed about him or whatever. Maybe it's just the the, the fancy uniform. But she says yes. They get married, and they have one daughter, Mary Margaret. And uh, as you were uh, alluding to earlier, that same year that they get married, he goes into business with his, with an associate, Eddie Jacobson, and they set up a hat shop 
in Kansas City. A haberdashery, or something like that, I don't know. Um, but of course, America at the time in the, uh, in the early 1920s was suffering economically. So a business that pretty much, you know, um, is for a certain part of society, a limited part of society, the business is not going to do well. And uh, the business has to close. And by the time it closes, Truman owes $20,000 to creditors. And this is back in 1919. I can only imagine um, what that, that actual is. It's in today's dollars. But he refuses to accept bankruptcy. And he insists on paying back all the money he borrowed, which took him more than 15 years. So here's this guy who's from the Midwest, seems to be a straight shooter, very dogged personality, but modest at the same time, asks the same girl uh, twice to marry him, owes a ton of debt, doesn't walk away from it, said, nope, nope, I borrowed it. It didn't work out like I'd hoped. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to need some time, but I'm going to pay you back. And he did. Yeah, so he gets... Marks for uh, integrity, here, at least here. in this sense. Yes. One of the things um, I forgot to mention when he was trying to enlist at the beginning of World War One is he was as blind as a bat, and oh, he God. failed the first um, eyesight exam. So apparently I read that before he went in to sit it a second time, he memorised the eye chart <laughs> so he could go in and fake his way through it. <laughs> Now, I don't know what they were thinking. They were like, haven't I seen you before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, like, seriously. Uh, I've been studying. I prayed to yeah. Jebus, and uh, miraculously, I can see perfectly now. So there's a half-blind guy with a cannon. No problem. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, I think that says something interesting about him. Like, me, if there was a war, I'd be faking blindness to, uh, to get out of the war. He's faking good eyesight to get into the war. Um, right. Yeah, we know a lot of young guys back then had some sort of weird idea about the honour and nobility of going to war. Um, so, yeah, but I thought that was an interesting story. Anyway, he, uh, as you say, he um, goes through the war, gets discharged in May 1919 uh, as a major in 1920, he joined the Reserve Officer Corps, uh, where he was a major. Then he gets promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in 1925 and a Colonel in 1932. Mm. And uh, when World War II comes around, he volunteered for active military service, but was not accepted because he was old, but also because FDR wanted the senators and the congressmen who belonged to the military reserves to stay at home, support the war effort by staying home and uh, doing their congressional and senatorial tasks. So he was keen to go back, though, right. Harry. Would, well, would have been a different place if he had, maybe. Right, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the haberdashery went broke. Now, this is where his friendship with uh, the young Pendergast lad pays off. Um, he ends up, Truman this is, his young Pendergast mate, Jimmy Pendergast, introduces him to uh, Mike Pendergast, the brother of TJ Pendergast, a.k.a. Tom Pendergast, who, as I said before, was this guy who ran the Kansas City Democratic machine. And with Pendergast's help, Truman gets elected in 1922 as county court judge 
of Jackson Ooh. County's Eastern District. Now, I was like, what? A judge? I didn't know he was a lawyer. Apparently, right. you right. don't have to be a lawyer to be a judge uh, in some parts of the US because the title judge is or was an, an administrative role. It's like an executive role rather than a judicial mm. role. Do they have that in uh, the bumfuck town you're from, Ray? Um, ouch. Uh, I don't know because I don't pay attention to what goes on around here. <laughs> I honestly don't. I really don't pay attention. I don't know. Yeah. I don't I, even know my neighbors. Yeah, I'm the same. It's funny. I, like, I jumped. I jumped in a, an Uber yesterday, and the uh, my driver was Iranian, or Iranian, Iranian, Persian, as actually he described himself. And you know, it was like, oh, Iran, huh? So we end up having this conversation, starting with Alexander, going through the death of the Prophet Muhammad, um, going through the Ottomans, and you know, oh, going through the the uh, overthrow of Mossadegh. The uh, and statement of uh, Pahlavi and uh, the White Revolution and then right through to... Because, you know, you and I have done a shit ton of stuff on Iran between Alexander and yeah. the bullshit filter. He was looking at me like, how do you know all this shit? You know more about the history of my country than <laughs> I do. It's like, dude, you've come to the... You've, you've picked up the right passenger today, my friend. <laughs> you lucky bastard. But I know more about... My point was I know more about Iranian history than I do about my neighbours. Um <laughs> Anyway, Pendergast. I want to talk about Pendergast because he is a really interesting guy. Anyway, in uh, his memoirs, Truman writes, went into business all enthusiastic, lost all I had and all I could borrow. Mike Pendergast uh, picked me up and put me into politics and I've been lucky. So Mike, uh, as I said before, was Tom's brother and enforcer. And he basically became became Harry's political mentor. And Harry said, I loved him as I did my own daddy. Now, oh. I'm not sure if that's a sexual thing. Uh, I'm not sure how that works in Missouri, but um, no, I'm, I'm assuming it's not. No, they, they say that for the farm animals. But the point is, in case anybody's uh, confused, we are talking about a politically corrupt system machine where... Um, Friends of the right people get in, and no one else does. It doesn't matter if you're qualified or whatever. So everything's rigged on on this on this very basic level in Missouri. And he was able to, whether he did it intentionally or not, get himself invited into that into that world. Yeah, I mean, it, it always um, sort of amazes me to read about the level of not just corruption that was going on in the U.S. at the time, but also just the violence that attended these elections. There were guns being pulled, people getting beaten up, all sorts of shit that you associate with, I don't know, brutal third world dictatorships. And this was going on in America during you know, FDR's era. Um, it's kind yeah. of makes you makes you wonder uh, about the legitimacy of <clears throat> elections like FDR's and, and um, others, Kennedy's even. We know the mob had some involvement in Kennedy's election. But... Um, Tom, let's talk about Tom Pendergast. So he basically controlled Kansas City and Jackson County, Missouri from 1925 to 1939. He was uh, mobbed up, uh, a gambling addict, unquestionably corrupt, 
and there were regular shootouts and beatings on election days during his era. Damn. <clears throat> he ran gambling, prostitution, bootlegging, narcotics, and racketeering. If anyone has seen the classic Coen Brothers film Miller's Crossing, where Albert Finney mm -hmm. plays the character of Leo, who's this Irish Catholic mob boss. Um, that's basically Tom Pendergast. <laughs> I don't think the film's based on him, but I think there was probably a lot of characters like this back in the day. But yeah, yeah it could have been. when yeah. I was reading about Tom Pendergast, I kept flashing to Albert Finney's character uh, in Miller's Crossing, which is one of my favourite films. Great, awesome, awesome film. Um, now, technically, Pendergast, I was just going to say, technically, legally, Pendergast was um, uh, he he, uh, he puts Truman in a in a position of uh, overseer of highways, but then he's got he's got other plans for this Truman, who seems to be a very hard worker, very modest, and a very loyal to him. Yeah, they seemed to like Truman because he was uh, honest, and they thought that would give them some good cover. <laughs> well, we we're not all crooks. Look, we 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 gave this guy a leg up, honest Harry. <laughs> Honest Harry. Um, right. uh, Tom, like a lot of these sort of guys in the time, these strong men, um, whether they were Irish Catholics like him or, or Italian Catholics like the mob guys, they did a lot of good for the poor. They provided mm -hmm. food protection, uh, helped them out during harsh economic times. And so, of course, the poor in Kansas City and Jackson County loved this guy and they helped him win votes even by voting four or five times during the election. <laughs> so he's like a, he's like a, a Robin Hood. He takes from the semi-well-to-do through his hookers and plows it back, in, no pun intended, but plows it back into the uh, local economy by helping the poor people. I, I think that's very noble. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and also providing them with liquor and hookers as well, and and and, 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 and poker games. Well, so, someone's got to do it. You know, he he was part of the democratic machine, and he delivered Kansas City to Franklin Roosevelt in the nineteen thirty two presidential election. So they turned a blind eye uh, to him. I mean, no one really yeah. cared about how he got the vote in, as long as he got right. the vote in. But he does. Everyone likes a winner. Yeah, although he does uh, end up doing time for tax evasion. And the, the way this happened is he had a falling out with a guy called Lloyd Stark, who was the heir to the Stark fruit f fortune. <laughs> mm -hmm. The Starks apparently basically invented apples. Um, <laughs> they developed the red delicious and golden delicious variety of apples. And uh, Stark was Pendergast's pick for governor in 1936. Pendergast was out of the country during the election, and the the uh, election was even more obvious and, and corrupt uh, than normal. A lot of violence. Wow. Um, there was mafia-related shootings going on during the election. And um, the Treasury Secretary at the time, Henry Morgenthau, who we've mentioned before on the show, mm. he went after the mafia boss in this area, uh, area Charlie the Wop Carollo. <laughs> and uh, as part of sort of a crackdown on organised crime and corruption. Now, this is obviously right. 30 years before the Kennedys sort of shamed 
um, the the FBI into taking the mafia seriously. I mean, at, at the time, the FBI, even into the 60s, the FBI was saying the mafia didn't exist until right. the Kennedys basically started, Bobby Kennedy as Attorney General started to take it into his own hands. But 30 years earlier, Henry Morgenthau... Uh, is cracking down, and Pendergast gets caught up in that, particularly when uh, Stark throws him under a bus and and basically turns um, sort of state uh, evidence, state witness, so I think what they call it over there. He he yeah. he basically yeah starts uh, throws Pendergast under the bus for his connection to organised crime. Um, and uh, Pendergast was a. a, a charged with failing to pay taxes on a bribe he received, uh, ended up serving 15 months in prison at Leavenworth, and uh, that was kind of the end of his political career. Now, another funny thing about Jackson County I wanted to Mm -hmm. talk about while we're on the subject, the founder of the Mormons, Joseph Smith, said that God personally told him that Jackson County, Missouri was to be the new Jerusalem. Oh. This is the place, said the Lord God to Joseph Smith. Make your base here. It's quite quite a promotion. You know, they'd come from sort of upstate New York, the the Smiths originally, and built the church there, and then they weren't very popular, so they moved and... And he said, this place, God has told me this is the place that we should build our base... You girls could sit on my face because <laughs> God said that's how he shows his grace. Right. <laughs> and I tickle We're going. your lace. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so he moved his church there in 1831, about a year after mm-hmm. he started it in 1830. This is going where we will build our temple and it will be the capital of godliness uh, until the people of Jackson County ran them out of town, uh, uh, the front end of their rifles and pitchforks a couple of years later. And where was God to be seen? Nowhere. Uh, God was... Uh, Leave me out of this. Asleep at yeah. the time. <laughs> and uh, now the fascinating thing about that is you would think that Smith's followers would have mm-hmm. called bullshit on his powers of prophecy and his talking to godliness. No. But that's, yeah, and that's not how fanatics work. When <laughs> when the prophet prophesizes something and it doesn't happen, the uh, followers don't go, dude, I think you're full of shit. They go, <laughs> they double down. They double down and go, oh, 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 oh this is obviously a test of my faith. I'm right. I'm shit, man. I'm I'm more committed yeah. than ever now. It's a weird phenomenon that we see across lots of lots of different cults, UFO cults and end of days cults and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so that's little. There's still a whole bunch of yeah. breakaway Mormon churches in Jackson County that uh, still believe that it's you know going to be really important when the when the second coming comes. Wow, road trip. When you come to America, 
We'll, we'll drive there and, and we'll talk to people. We'll interview them and we'll talk to well, them and try not to get shot. Once I, once I finish my first documentary, I seriously want to make my second documentary about the Mormons. Uh, so oh, that would be cool. So closely related to them family-wise. And um, and I'm fascinated. Like Again, like, like the whole early Christianity story, the story of the Mormons is fascinating, man. Like, absolutely. Like, such a classic American story of... Uh, you know, young fella who picked himself up by his bootstraps and just started a religion so he could fuck lots of yeah. bitches and uh, no. build a private military. I mean, it's just it's just, oh just such a fucking great story every every step of the way. It's just it's gold. Like yeah, well, you you read the story, well, which most Mormons don't have any yeah. clue of, by the way, because they they got a sanitized whitewashed version of it, and they 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 don't bother to actually research because fuck that would be. That would be that would require using your brain, and um, uh, but when you read the real story, it's almost too crazy to be true. But uh, it's gold. I love it. Yeah. Well, the American dream comes in many forms. Whether you want to be a corrupt political boss or the the head of your own church, where everything you do is sanctioned by God. I mean, whatever works for you. And for for everyone out there, I don't want you to think that uh, Harry S. Truman is just sitting on his laurels. Just to let you know, between 1923 and 1925, he took night courses uh, towards an LLB, which is an undergraduate degree in law. So he was, you know, yes, he might have been a, a he had the title of judge. It was administrative, but he was pursuing something in the field of law. So, you know, so he certainly had, I guess, the basics uh, that he was covering, but but that's not going to last very long. He's going to drop out when he, uh, when he loses an election. But the point is, this guy, when he was a kid, gets up at 5 a.m., reads voraciously, studies piano for years, very close to his mother. She encouraged him to work hard, play by the rules, dedicate himself, you know, make himself a smarter person and aim high. And so th- those lessons that he learned is still with this guy today, because even though he's in his 30s or whatever, and he's married, he's got a daughter, he's still going to night classes. He's, he's still trying to get. Uh, he's still trying to improve himself. So again, this guy is the is the epitome of the American dream. He is always looking up, and and towards whatever could be a better tomorrow for him and his family. And yeah, as you said, he loses his re-election in 1924. Uh, you know, Pendergast wasn't the only political boss in this area. There was even competition right. in the Democrats there, and uh, as well as of course against the Republicans. So now he loses this one. And it, and it seems like the Pendergast didn't think too highly of Harry at this stage. Tom himself, they saw him as a bit of a weak sort of a candidate. Uh, they didn't have a, it wasn't like they were like, this This kid's a superstar. He was just clean cut. You know, they, they helped him out as a favour to Jimmy, who was a friend of his in the war kind of deal. Anyway, when he loses in 24, Truman spends two years selling automobile club memberships. Um, what do you call it? Triple A over there, I think, is one of those, right? Right, yep. Um, yep. That sucked. Uh, so he went back into politics. Now, also around this time, he joined the KKK because um, he thought that would be a good career move. Um, <laughs> it's all about connections, making connections. Mm, it's who you know, mm. who you know. I know the guy in the white hood. But then when they told him uh, they would support his campaign, but they he wouldn't be allowed to hire Catholics which was kind of a problem because his political boss was a Catholic, um, so he unjoined the AK, mm. the KKK. Join him, then didn't join him. You know, he's happy to he's happy to join 
white, right. white, racist, violent <laughs> organizations. Uh, as long as they, if it helps, it. Yeah. as long as they, you know, he draws the line. Of, like kill, <laughs> killing niggers is okay, no. but don't tell me, no. don't tell me I can't hire Mix. Right. If I can't hire Mix, yeah, that's that's where I draw the line. That's a deal breaker. He uninstalled Hating Jews the KKK. and darkies. <laughs> I'm your man, but you tell me who I can and cannot hire. I'm sorry. That's a deal breaker for me. Yeah, that's where he draws the line. Yeah, yeah. So um, he gets back into politics. In 1926, he's elected presiding judge, the county's chief executive, again with the support of the Pendergasts. He's re-elected in 1930, and in 1933... He is named Missouri's director for the Federal Reemployment Program, which is part of the Civil Works Administration, which was a short-lived U.S. job creation program established by Roosevelt during the New Deal, during the Great Depression, to create manual labor jobs for millions of unemployed workers. And Good for who him. was the head of the Civil Works Administration? Morgenthau? I can't remember. Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins, so sorry. Okay. This is where Harry Truman meets world. Harry Hopkins, which is going to be an important relationship as well. Now, the CWA only lasted five months, but in that time it spent $200 million a month and gave Woo! jobs to 4 million people. The workers under the CWA laid 12 million feet of sewer pipe because there were no, there was no sewerage in large parts of the U.S. at the time, um, right. and built or improved 255,000 miles of road, 40,000 schools, 3,700 playgrounds, and nearly a thousand airports. Not to mention building 250,000 outhouses, which were still badly needed in rural America. Hey, we have them here in Nelson County today. See, that's the America when America was great. That's the America that Trump wants to take us back to. He wants to make America great again. And if he can do that by cutting taxes for the uber rich in this country, then I say let's, let's shoot him. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we've talked about um, the the Civil Works Administration and the Works Progress Administration, I think, briefly um, earlier on in the series when we were talking about FDR. Um, I remember reading a biography on Harry Hopkins, uh, I think I've mentioned like 25 years ago, just being really impressed. I, I love this idea of just taking the unemployed and, and um, putting them to work uh, and to, to do stuff that needs being done until they can find more gainful employment, you know. Yeah. And no matter what Rush, Rush Limbaugh says, a lot of those people will take jobs if you if they are offered it to them, that the fact that they're, uh, you know, the, the myth that they're lazy and they don't want to work, that, that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, they helped a lot of people during that time and get back on their feet. And, um, and those people did not forget that they were very loyal to those who were able to help them in their time of need. Mm. So after five months, the CWA was replaced by the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. It employed millions of mostly men, mostly unskilled men, to do public works projects. Uh, it survived until 1943, when, of course, the ramp up to World War II meant unemployment wasn't a problem. So, um, you know, 
I know. I'd love to do a, a series on the Works Progress Administration at some point. I think it's really worth understanding. It was a really interesting idea, and and but it was a form of Keynesianism, obviously. You know, Keynes saying, you know, in harsh times, government can spend money to revitalize the economy, but during World War Two, they got replaced by military Keynesianism, and uh, well, that's sort of run the country ever since. Yeah, everybody's wearing a uniform by then. So yeah, so that was 1933, and then in 1934, Truman finally comes into his own when he's elected into the United States Senate. Well, before that, though, he wanted to run for governor or Congress, but Pendergast turned him down because he thought he was a bit of a lightweight. Oh, God. He's like, nah. (laughs) Nah, 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 nah. Nah, you don't don't have what it takes to be a big hitter. Just just sit there. And Truman really thought that was it. You know, in his memoirs, he basically said, well, you know, he just sort of resigned himself to the fact that he was just going to, you know, be one of these low-level guys, uh, a presiding right. judge or whatever in Jackson County uh, for the rest of his life and had kind of resigned himself to that until four other potential candidates to run for the Senate turned Pendergast down and he went down the list. Until he kept going down the list until he came to Truman's name and he was like, oh, fuck, I'm getting, you know. My Scraping the bottom choice. of the barrel. Fuck. Harry bottom of the barrel Truman. <laughs> That's what he called him. <laughs> but for whatever reason, it worked. But yeah, he must have really not thought. A lot of him, you, you would think someone who's in charge of a political machine would be able to read people really well. Yeah, well. Anyway, Truman wins and gets into the Senate where he was known as the Senator from Pendergast. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. And in the reception area of his office, just to make sure that nickname stuck over the marble mantelpiece where no one could possibly miss it, Truman put a framed portrait of T.J. Pendergast. They were a lot more open about patronage back then, weren't they? Yeah. Like, that's my big daddy. That's the man who put me where I am today. (laughs) Um, Now... My you second know, daddy. Like, now, Pendergast, you know, obviously went to prison, but uh, that didn't stop Truman. He still managed to get re-elected, barely, 1940. Yeah. Had to get himself another big daddy. Um, but he wasn't endorsed by Roosevelt, and he didn't back Roosevelt at that point in time either, which is interesting. Roosevelt, mm. and, <laughs> along with... Many other people didn't have a lot of time for Truman, as it turns out. <laughs> right, but but when um when Truman was running for election, uh, his uh, second election, nineteen forty, from what I could tell, he was pretty honest about his association with Pendergast. He was like, "Yes, this is the person that I have aligned myself with. Yes, he's in jail, but I'm I'm not going to hide from him. I'm, I'm not going to hide from him. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to obfuscate because that's not what I do. And in some ways, his reputation as at least at least for being honest and, and being a direct talker was solidified with the second election. So what he had to say was not all that great, but the fact that he was honest about it did earn him some respect in some circles. Yeah. Honest Harry Truman. Now this is where he starts to make a name for himself uh, in the early forties. He traveled to a bunch of military bases around the U S where he supposedly uncovered lots of waste 
in mm-hmm. uh, how things were being manufactured, how things were being run in the ramp up to the US getting involved in the war. And he, uh, in his role as a senator, he set up an, a, an investigation, a committee to try and cut down on this waste, and it was known as the Truman Committee. Um, he had heard apparently about waste and profiteering from uh, construction uh, at the Fort Leonard Wood in his home state of Missouri. And people had said, hey, you know what? There's a lot of profiteering going on with this. So he went to check it out. And that's where he said, fuck me. This, these people are just <laughs> taking taxpayers' money. Like people who have listened to our three-episode uh, economics arc will understand about war profiteering and how that's a major part of the uh, uh, military budget in the US today as it was mm-hmm. back then when money's just being handed out hand over fist you're always going to have a bunch of crooks that go oh yeah I can do, I can do that and you know and and they were obviously bribing their local congressmen or senators or whoever to right. make sure they got the contracts money goes uh, out of the taxpayers pockets into the Pentagon's budget out of that goes to dodgy contractor. Dodgy contractor takes a chunk of that, gives it to the senator who uh, helped him get elected. Well, he probably gave him some ahead of time as well to, anyway, to grease the wheels. So it's it's just right. this big corruption. Circle. Yeah. Truman sees it and goes, I'm going to put a stop to this. He travels in his personal Dodge car, not only to Missouri, but to a whole bunch of military installations throughout the Midwest, did 10,000 miles of driving in his own car to check all this stuff out. Damn, he didn't have a chauffeur? chauffeur? Uh, no, he didn't have a chauffeur, as far as I know. I don't know. Maybe he did. Okay. Maybe he... I just said he travelled in his personal car. I d- didn't say... Right. My notes didn't tell me no. whether or not he had some little boy in a chauffeur's uniform <laughs> driving him around. I don't know. I don't know how oh they God. do it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, So good for him. Good for him. But of course, this is uh, the early 40s. There's still a lot of poverty amongst working people uh, around the United States. So he sees that and he contrasts that with millions of government dollars going to military contractors who are taking excess profits on cost plus contracts. Uh, They're not being held accountable. The quality of the goods they're delivering is poor. Um, Most of the contracts are going to a relatively small number of contractors based in the east rather than being distributed equally around the place. Um, So he returns to Washington, met with Roosevelt in one of the rare instances where he actually got an audience with Roosevelt, and uh, he said, I want to set up a program, and Roosevelt said, all right, you go do that, little Harry. (laughs) Blind Harry. Yeah, and and it works. I mean, he's able to make a name for himself. Again, he reinforces his uh, reputation, whether it's sincere or not, as far as being honest broker, that kind of thing. And that, that's going to serve him well when FDR is looking around for a running mate a couple of years down the road. So he's able to, you know, this is right up FDR's alley. Alley, I'm going to stop government waste so, so the money can be more efficiently spent on helping the poor, because that was the whole point of FDR's programs. And again, this is going to dovetail nicely into when FDR needs someone to run with him in the future. But apparently the real reason Truman ended up running this is that in early 1941, uh, there was this Democrat, Eugene Cox, 
who was uh, anti-New Deal Democrat. Not all of the Democrats got behind the New Deal. And he had heard about federal waste and military spending, and he proposed an investigative committee be set up by the House of Representatives to look into it. Roosevelt thought, well, this guy is a shit-stirrer and right. is probably going to you know, make me look bad. So they created, and Roosevelt with uh, James Burns, Justice Burns, created his own committee and uh, stuck Truman in as a because they thought Truman was less ideolo- ideological and accusatory. So again, Truman was picked because he was seen to be kind of the safe choice here. A plotter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it worked. It worked. Yeah, look, the Truman Committee was very successful. Um, its initial budget was only $15,000, but over the next three years it was expanded to $360,000, and it saved an estimated 10 to $15 billion in military oh spending. God. That just gives you an idea of the amount of corruption. And we're not even... I mean, that that's just... That's, and that's back in that, those days. I mean, wow. That's just yeah. sad. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that 10 to $15 billion in the 40s of wastage and corruption and war profiteering. Right. Jeez. In March of 1943, uh, which was the second anniversary of the Truman Committee, Time magazine put Investigator Truman on their front cover. So that raised his profile nice. to a sort of a national level. He developed a reputation for being hon- honest Harry, despite the fact that he was one of Tom Pendergast's boys. Um, so he's, he's taken this connection with a well-known, corrupt, mobbed-up, violent, gangster Democrat, bootlegger, gambling, <laughs> run-and-hookers dude... And through this Truman Committee has been able to turn it into a reputation for being the honest guy, which is kind of astounding, really. It's it's really astounding. Well, if you take a turd and you shine it up... No, I'm done with that. Never mind. <laughs> now, it was during this period where Senator Truman said to the media, to some journalists, if we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany... And that way, let them kill as many as possible. Although I don't want to see Hitler victorious under any circumstances. So that statement indicates uh, his position on the Russians. And of course, when he's president, (laughs) the Russians are going to remember this. Uh, Not great. Now, also during this period in 1943, during his investigations into military expenditure... He came across a project that was labelled S-1, also known as the Manhattan Project, obviously. He asked, didn't know anything about it. He asked Secretary of War Henry Stimson, hey, you spent $2 billion on this S-1 project. What's that all about? (laughs) And uh, according to to Truman's uh, memoirs, Stimson, uh, Truman was sending people to go and investigate what was going on. With this S one project, and he gets a he gets a phone call from Stimson and says, oh, uh, "You and I need to talk." And Harry says, "All right, I'll come to your office." He goes, "No, no, I'll come to your office." And they get there. When Stimson comes there, he says to Harry, "Listen, um, this S one thing, it's top secret. Um, you're not allowed to know about it, and we'd really appreciate it if you would stop looking into it." And Truman went, "Okay." 
and that was it. <laughs> he says in his message, well, look, Stimson was a good guy. I trusted him, so I said, all right. And that was that. He didn't find out any more about it for obviously several years. Right. Surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the 1944 presidential campaign. Roosevelt's vice president at the time had been Henry Wallace. Now, Wallace Mm -hmm. was popular with the Democratic voters, but not that popular with sort of the power players inside the DNC. We've talked about this before. I know when we had uh, Campbell Craig and some of these scholars on, we talked about the fact that Wallace was seen as being too friendly towards the left, the commies, the Soviets, the Labor right. groups, uh, and, and some of Roosevelt's advisors didn't like it. He said crazy things like this. You're not going to believe how crazy this is. He said in one speech, men and women can never be really free unless they have plenty to eat, time and ability to read and think and talk things over. Wow. He should be shot. Crazy yeah, fucking pinko commie. <laughs> Better dead than red. Yeah. yeah. So they had to get rid of him. Uh, now, yeah. some of Roosevelt's advisors um, wanted Jimmy Burns, Justice Burns, to be the Veep candidate. Obviously, mm-hmm. as we've discussed in the past, close confidant. FDR, former congressman, senator, supreme justice, had run the war mobilization effort, had been at not only Yalta and Tehran, he had been at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Nice. In fact, he may have been instrumental in getting Woodrow Wilson to go to the peace conference in 1919. So this guy had been around, although he was kept on the sidelines at Yalta, as we know, much to his disgust. Mm-hmm. But... As Wallace was too liberal for some of the Democrats, Burns was too far to the right. Mm. FDR, personally, didn't seem to care who his veep was. They were like, dude, you're old, you're sick, you need a veep. He was like, I'm a one-man show, motherfuckers. This is the FDR show. Doesn't matter who my veep is. He's not going to get anything to do because I'm the fucking man and I'm going to live forever. And that's when they came back with, let's let's play a game. Let's say, for hypothetical uh, say, you don't live forever. So um, whoever we pick as your next, your fourth vice president is, you know, that's a pretty important, important choice. So let's get someone that we can tolerate, someone who's not too far to the left, someone who's not too far to the right, someone who's pretty, you know, pretty mainstream, middle of the road, fiscally conservative, um, and... Um, you know, who cares about citizens' rights and stuff like that. Let's get someone safe in here who can take over. Heaven forbid if the great white father calls you earlier than before your fourth term is up. The Goldilocks candidate. Not too hot, not too cold, just bland. Just bland enough to not upset anyone. Now, when they interestingly, when they went to the Chicago convention of 1944, the Democrat convention, no one even at that stage knew who was going to be on the ticket. Both Wallace and Burns assumed it was going to be them. All this backroom fighting's going Ooh. on during the actual fucking convention where they're going to announce their ticket. Uh, all of this stuff's going in the back rooms. Now, as you say, Truman get picked, but Truman Truman got picked, but Truman himself was preparing to endorse Burns for the vice presidency. 
Right. And could hardly believe it when he heard that the party had picked him instead. He wasn't running for it, campaigning for it, did not expect it at all. Um, according to his own accounts, Truman said, oh, shit, why the hell didn't he tell me in the first place when they when he found out that they'd uh, picked him? And he was given no notice. They just pushed him up on the stage and said, uh, give a one-minute acceptance speech. That's right. Say something. Yeah. So he was like, what? And he got up and said, uh, thank you. I'm bonded and I'm going to be do whatever he tells me. And that was it. And he got off the stage. It was like, yeah, man. And, and Burns, obviously, not happy. Jan left Chicago furious with Roosevelt and not too happy with mm. Truman. But as we're going to see, that relationship will be kind of quasi-mended pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So again, even though Truman had no idea this was coming, once he gets the nomination, he does um, do what FDR has trouble with. I mean, obviously, uh, Truman can walk. He's very mobile. So he gets out there and he campaigns vigorously. Not that I'm sure it was really needed, but it looked good for him to go through the motion. Yeah, I, I think he Roosevelt would have won regardless of who the Veep was, but... Yeah. He did win. Um, by the way, prior to being named on the ticket, Truman had not seen or spoken to Roosevelt in more than a year. <laughs> so that's how wow, close damn. these guys that were. That just shows you how FDR's yeah. mind works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After the election, Roosevelt sent Truman a note on January 22nd, 1945, asking him to limit his communications with him to absolutely urgent items. God. And to keep his message, keep his messages as brief as possible in order not to tie up communications. In case something, in case someone more important needs to talk to me. Yeah, to my vice president. Yeah. He um, made it crystal clear, Roosevelt, that he had no intention of preparing Truman to take over the reins of government should anything happen to him. And during his four months as vice president. Truman and Roosevelt spoke twice. Oh, God. What was it? Good morning. Hey, how's it going? How's it hanging? Mm, mm. And it wasn't only Roosevelt who didn't like talking to Truman. None of his inner circle had anything to do with him, didn't see any reason to keep him informed. They kept him away from the daily briefings. They excluded him from the White House map room, sort of discussing where the war was at, what was going on. None of Roosevelt's aides shared anything classified with Truman. Uh, he barely went to any cabinet sessions, wasn't invited to top-level meetings. Uh, Charles Bolin, who was sort of Roosevelt's Russian interpreter and the, the sort of head expert on Russia at the State Department, said of Truman, he said he was an obscure vice president who got to see Roosevelt much less than I did and who knew less than I did about United States foreign relations. Well, the good news is that, and I'm not trying to jump too far ahead, uh, Truman's going to have this position of trying to figure out what he's going to do with his days for 82 days before FDR dies. So he, so he gets 82 days in the White House. Now, neither Roosevelt nor Statinius nor anyone else who was at Yalta uh, decided to brief Truman on what happened when they got back. Uh, no one thought it was necessary or important to tell Truman yeah, yeah. about any of the discussions of the agreements. 
One White House beat reporter at the time said, Truman doesn't know what's going on. Roosevelt won't tell him anything. Um, now, Truman didn't even get to see the, the, the transcripts of the Alter discussions. And obviously, even now he's vice president, no one briefed him on the Manhattan Project. Uh, he, he was just kept in the dark completely during these four months, not given any ramp up. Now, this is a guy who, uh, apart from his involvement in World War One, had never really been overseas, had no experience mm-hmm. with foreign relations, had no experience with anything presidential uh, involving the Second War. Uh, just completely kept in the dark, almost deliberately, which is bizarre, man. Like, it's so... We've talked about this before, like, particularly with Roosevelt's health situation. You would think you would have this guy yeah. fucking super briefed up to the up to date in case anything happened, but no, almost deliberate... Uh, a, a, a deliberate strategy was to keep him as fucking in the shadows as much as possible so he could know nothing. It's astounding. Yeah. Now, one of his first... It doesn't... Yeah, go. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it doesn't matter because now he is the 33rd president of the United States and obviously he's going to have to rely on his advisors for, for everything when it comes to foreign affairs because, like you said, he doesn't know anything and he hasn't been briefed on anything. Yeah, before that, though, I wanted to say that his first act as vice president was to go to Pendergast's funeral, TJ Pendergast. Tom Pendergast died... Just as President became uh, Truman became Vice President, which must have made Tom proud. Then he died, and Truman went to his funeral. Everyone's going, "Why did he go to the funeral of this disgraced dude? He came out of Leavenworth. He was corrupt. He was mobbed up." And Truman just said, "He was always my friend, and I have always been his." So that's admirable. Well, yeah, you know, as you said earlier, he was at least honest about his relationships with guys like this. And um, even after he was disgraced and dead, he still said, no, I'm going to do the right thing and attend his funeral. So what do we learn from all this? Seems to me like like there's not a lot of difference between Trump and Truman. It's just one letter, T-R-U-M-P-T-R-U-M-A-N. <laughs> Um, Truman was a a failed businessman who was Mm -hmm. thrown a lifeline by a mobbed-up, corrupt political boss, got him into the political arena, and eventually Truman rehabbed his reputation by turning himself into the guy who sought out corruption. I'm sorry, that, that just begs a question. I have to ask this question. In your opinion, what could Trump do in the next three and quarter years to turn around his reputation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> resign? Yeah. Is that what you said? Resign? Uh, Even then. Do you know what the history books are going to do to this t- guy? Anyway, take, let's Take on. off the mask and reveal that he's really been Andy <laughs> Kaufman the whole time. That's about the only thing. We'd all have a good old laugh. Fully, we go, oh, yeah. Andy. You're crazy, <laughs> you Andy. You got us. You got us, Andy. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's about it. Anyway. So he leveraged that uh, corruption-busting job into the vice presidency uh, a few months before FDR died. So when he became president, he takes this new persona of the tough guy. I think of it as his P- Pendergast persona into his oh. negotiations with Stalin. 
He seems like he was sort of, obviously, every, no one had any time for him. Not even really Pendergast who thought he was a lightweight. He's got this sort of tough man persona now that mm-hmm. he's developed over the the period that I figure he's learned from the Pendergasts because he didn't seem to have that persona. Maybe he developed a little bit of it when he was uh, in the army, but uh, I, I get the sense that he picked up a lot of it from the, the Pendergast operation. Right. Well, there, there's an expression in the military that, that's very handy for people who get promoted and they're not sure what to do. And it's used by, obviously, civilians as well. And that's fake it until you make it. And you just really get the sense that Truman is like, okay, I'm not sure exactly the type of person I'll be or president I'll be or what I want to do or what my tone should be. So I'm just going to put on this persona until I can figure out who and what and where I am when it comes to sitting in this Oval Office. I mean, I would not want to sit in that chair after FDR has been in it. But you just get the sense that he puts on this suit, this 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 uh, mask, if you will, and he's going to just hold on to that until he can figure himself out, which is fine. But it, it turns out that that mask, that persona that he's wearing, is a little too unflinching and tough for the situation that, that he's currently in as president. Hmm. Now, um, on the April tw- on April twelfth, nineteen forty five, Truman went to the Senate to listen to a debate about a water rights treaty with Mexico. And uh, afterwards, they went into uh, a little room in the Senate known as the Board of Education, where Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, would often have a drink with colleagues at the end of the day. When Truman walked into the room, Rayburn told him that the White House press secretary was looking for him. So Truman dialed the number and announced himself. And then everyone else in the room noticed that all of the colour left his face. He hung up the phone. He said, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, which is now my new go-to <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> uh, then he ran through the Capitol to get to the White House as quickly as he could. Uh, he got there. The White House press secretary greeted him. Um, He was taken into Eleanor Roosevelt's room, um, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, Roosevelt's daughter was there as well. And uh, Eleanor went up to Truman, placed her hand on his arm, and softly said, Harry, the president is dead. He said, is there anything I can do for you? And she replied, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one who is in trouble now. (laughs) Eleanor didn't play. She never minced words. Truman said, I felt as though the moon and a couple of planets had fallen on me. I have the most terrible responsibility any man ever faced. And to a friend, he wrote, I'm not big enough I'm not big enough for this job. Right. As we in a couple days. Uh, yeah, sorry. So I was going to say, as we will soon find out. Yeah, and a couple days later, he says he, he uses almost that same uh, quote for the press. He says, "Boys, uh, let's see here, boys. The weight of all the planets in the world has just fallen on me." So I think there was a couple of days where he's being completely honest with himself and everyone else, and he's just sitting there going, "Oh wow! Oh wow! Oh wow!" And at least he's honest enough to admit that. Well, that's where my notes finish. Do you have anything else to add? Nope. 
Well, that's the Truman bio, folks. We will return next week with more of the linear story. Uh, but before we go, I want to thank our latest heroes. Alima Jawad, M. Francis, Toms Bunkis, Clint Booth, Elizabeth Adabomi, James Burton, Tarek Terzik, Eliran Eliasi, Gary Becker, Darren Davies, Ole Bjorsvik, Samuel Nora, Thomas Keating, Christian Klee, Shane Ingram, Stuart Hughes, Stephen Pettersson, Sean Morgan, Kyle Fernie, Lee McKnight, Manish Chav... Chav fuck. Manish Chakravarti... <laughs> Sorry, Manish. Donnie Huckabee, their DEFCON 1s, and our Defcon new DEFCON 2 supporter, Rick Morrow. Golf clap for Rick Morrow. Rick. Um, and a new review. This is from Mr. B. Jones 73 of Australia. He says, listen up, sheeple. This podcast is giving you the background on how the Cold War came about and continues to this day. If you thought it was over, more fool you. Cam and Ray will provide you with a very in-depth, thought-provoking look at human nature and the reasons why we do the completely stupid, logical things we do and how those things led to the big standoff we all know and love. If you're not easily offended by bad language and can keep track of massive plot lines with multiple characters, fan of the Game of Thrones books should shine, then give this a go. Full of bad off-colour jokes, great 80s music and insults being thrown mainly at the long-suffering Ray. Seriously, Cam, calm down on Ray. Remember, he lives in the US where guns are king. Worth the price of admission. P.S. Don't give up during Yalta. Knuckle down and get through it. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> thank you, Mr. B. Jones 73. Shoot us an email with your address. We'll send you a thank you gift for the uh, review. That, Gracias. That's it, folks. We'll be back, hopefully, without the noise outside uh, next time. Descended across the continent. From the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba, the purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>